0: This is Bumping Into, where we
1: have interesting conversations with people from all walks of life. Hi, everybody. Welcome to another episode of Bumping Into. This is going to be quite an important episode, this one. I'm talking with Jeff Parks, who is the president of Nasho Fair Go, which is an organization that has been designed for the National Servicemen of Australia that were uh, basically forced under conscription to join the army, but did not make it to a war zone. So what that means is that you've got a 20-year-old person who was uh, called up for national service via conscription, forced to uh, endure the army training, and they could be there up until you know two, two years, however long they were there, uh, but never made it to war. They were then forced or sent back out into civilian life with... None of the benefits that they would have received had they have spent at least one day in a war zone. Now, where that gets important is let me give you an example. So first, let's talk about your conscripted. So the government has forced you to join the army. They've taken you from your home and told you you've got to go to ex-army camp. You're doing training. You slip, hurt yourself, hurt your back. 20 years later, you've still got back issues. You have no support from the army for that. Had you have served one day in the active war zone, completely different story. And what you would have had is a DVA gold card. Now that's a health card that entitles you to a whole range of free healthcare benefits um, that you may need through the rest of your life after you've performed your, you know, your um, conscription service. These guys didn't get any of that. They were thrown back out. They were on their own after their time in training finished or the war ended while they were training. So you're going to hear uh, Jeff basically explain why that's important, what he's fighting for, um, all of these members that that basically have issues that have never had any help. But what we are going to do first is we're going to go back and talk about the Vietnam War. We're going to paint a bit of a picture, a bit of a summary about that war, about some of the differences between World War II and the, the Vietnam War. Um, we're going to talk then – about the organisation itself and Jeff's story. So if follow it through to Jeff's story which comes in after and the reason I've done that is I think it's important to create a bit of a picture, a bit of a summary for some of those people that might not know too much about the Vietnam War, Australia's involvement and how the people were treated straight after that war ended. So stick with the episode from start to finish. It all comes together. I talk about a couple of things, or we talk about a couple of things in this podcast that I am going to list on the website page. So what you will be able to do is head to bumpinginto.com.au, find this episode, the Nasho Fair Go episode. You'll find some extra links that I normally wouldn't have that are going to take you to some of the things that we've spoken about if you want to find out more. One of them is a documentary that was made by the ABC in the early 80s. I think it's an important documentary to watch. It, it is quite heavy. It is it is a bit disturbing to watch, but it's also an eye opener, and it puts a level of appreciation that a lot of people wouldn't have around the soldiers and the people involved in that war. You know, if you're in, interested in it and you're up for it, I would recommend watching that. That it's only a small documentary. I think it's a, it's a twenty minute clip within the documentary as such. Watch that. Uh, it's going to add a lot more weight and context to this podcast. Um, I'm also going to list Jeff's website, the nashofairgo.com.au website. On that site, you'll have the stories that you can read from some of the members. You'll have more information about what they're fighting for and why they're fighting for it. You'll also have the option, should you want, is to donate some money to them and, and Jeff goes into what they do with some of the money they receive and how it's all reinvested back in to help create more awareness and bring in more members. So that's all going to be listed there for you if you want. The other thing I am going to ask is that if you do know anybody that you think would enjoy the show, please share it. I'm not going to ask you to subscribe or follow the podcast because the nature of this podcast is that every episode should be different. Every episode has a different feel. Um... And as such, I don't expect people to come in droves by following because if I've done it properly, an episode on one topic will feel completely different to an episode on another topic and it's highly unlikely that the two of them uh, you, you may connect with and that's fine. But what I do ask is that if you think it's important or you've enjoyed it or you know someone else that might like it, share that podcast. And in this case, it's going to not only help the podcast grow, It's going to help Jeff and the Nashos. So that on itself is important. So please, if you do know anybody, hit the share button, send it to someone and ask them to have a listen. With all that said, let's go straight into this conversation, largely unedited, a conversation with Jeff about the Nasho Fair Go and the Vietnam War.
0: Hey, Jeff, how are you going? Hey, can you see me? No, I can't, but I can hear you. Things I need a (laughs) grandkid here. Uh, there's a little slide cover there. Yeah, there you go. I had a meeting yesterday with some Senator Jackie Lambie, and I was dark for that as well. So. <laughs> <laughs> there we go.
1: Oh, well, thank you okay. very much, Jeff. Thanks for your time. I appreciate you coming on. You're welcome. You're welcome. Um, what I wanted to do is, and obviously I'll be guided by yourself, but I thought if we go into a bit of a summary with the Vietnam War. Um, you know, about, I suppose, the, the events, the duration of the war, um, some of the typical things that are understood and misunderstood about it, um, because I'm, I'm guessing that, you know, you obviously you're quite across the whole spectrum of that, that period of war, and then go into your organisation and look at some of the stuff that you're trying to do and what you're basically, you know, campaigning for. Yep. Sounds good. Sounds good. So if we go back to the start... So uh, some of the rough stats that I've got, we, we've obviously got the war went from 55 to 75, but Australia was involved from 62 to, say,
0: is it 7 I'm getting conflicting things, 73, 73. Yeah, no, well, you, you're not far wrong. We sent our first advisors up in 62. Okay,
1: right. So we've got conscription came in under Menzies in 64. Yes. Yes. And then Whitlam took it out in 74. Uh, 72.
0: 72. Uh, 70, yes. Uh, technically, it's December the 7th,
1: 72. Right. So,
0: the was best. The end of it. In reality, I think by the time they legislated it out, but on December, the straight after the election, they said to us all, well, if you want to piss off, piss off. <laughs>
1: <laughs> so, if we, if we, um, if we go back, I mean, I, you know, it, it's, it's something that interests me. I'm interested in, in all history, but one of the things that I suppose is the difference between this war, that war, and, and World War Two, which you know is probably the most um, documented in terms of the association of of you know the Australian Anzac. Everyone has a mental image straight away. World War Two type soldier, yeah. um, is is the uh, I guess. And it's hard because I know after World War II, they also had a lot of mental asylums and they had mental health issues and all the rest of it. But there seemed to be a real elevated level of that with this war. There seemed to be a lot more um, psychological issues and a lot more trauma. And when I was trying to find you know, why, one of the things I came across, and pull me up if any of this is wrong, is is one person was saying, one, it was disproportionately high number of young Men were in this war as opposed to a broad spectrum you know and yep. there was there was no front line the war was wasn 't like it was in World War two where you were at a at a line as such trying to move and the the next thing was that women and children were used in this war in a way that hadn 't been used in the in the,
0: the world wars yeah you're know, very all very perceptive ob- observations there francis i 'd say you uh World War II, of course, we felt in dire danger of being invaded. Yeah. And, of course, um, Japanese shells and bombs had landed on Australia Uh, and even Sydney, Coogee was shelled from the sea, but uh, more bombs were dropped on Darwin than were dropped on Pearl Harbour. So uh, people were absolutely in fear of uh, being invaded by the Japanese. And you had a total mobilisation. Australia had one of the biggest armies in the world at the end of World War Two. Wow. Um, massive, because practically every able-bodied man was called up into service if he hadn't volunteered. Right. So you had this thing that everybody was in it, and this is where our particular gripe, my group's gripe is. But 1964, Menzies decided that he wanted to ingratiate himself with the Americans. He wasn't asked, but he made an offer to send a battalion to Vietnam. And at the time, even the Vietnamese government wasn't too sure what to do with it and not sure whether they wanted us to be there. Wow. But Menzies decided um, in in his largesse that he would um, send a battalion to Vietnam. Now, what had happened since the end of World War II and the start of this period was that Australia's army had almost disintegrated into nothing. So from being one of the biggest armies in the world, in 1945, it was um, absolutely ragtag. And they had to get the numbers up to make a functional army to send to Vietnam. They had to build it up to a, a larger number. And the way he did it, very cunningly, was by selective national service. So he introduced a little tag that you could have a lottery and uh, you could draft people into national service. But uh, you had your regular soldiers who uh, were part of the army, but a lot of them were kids coming in at 17. Uh, The army wasn't very trendy sort of an occupation in in the late 60s, early 70s. Uh, We were were into long hair and rebellion against their parents and... um, Pay was terrible. So they couldn't attract enough recruits to the regular army. They also needed for jungle fighting in Vietnam, they needed big strong men to carry packs and, and weapons and things. So your 17, 18-year-old recruit that the army normally would aim at and hold him for six years and build build him up uh, and train him. He wasn't going to cut it. For, they wanted people straight away that were big and strong. So they raised the age uh, under the 64 National Service Act to 20 from 18. It's a had, there had been a National Service Act between 51 and 59, but that was one that everybody went into. This was selective, and only 7% of people aged uh, age 20 uh, finished up going into the army out of all the people that turned 20, 870,000 people over that period only 63,375 of us were called up it's amazing
1: to think like with with conscription and and again it's 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 a convoluted thing to try and look into but from what i can tell there's nothing stopping that from ever coming back if if someone wanted to reintroduce it it's back again click of the fingers by
0: that current government is that is that right in saying that well, you tell me uh, you, how do you think young people today would react if uh, they said, okay, we're going to take 7% of you and uh, force you into the army for two years. I yeah. think you would find uh, that people wouldn't put up. People were a lot more civil, um, res- respected the civil command in, that, in yeah. those days. I um, mean, I, I think you get a lot of people say, well, come and
1: take me to jail. I'm not going.
0: Yeah, yeah, well, there were some brave people who did that in in the um sixty five seventy two, National Service era too. And oh. uh, I was one of the ones who was against going into National Service, but I didn't have the guts to spend two, my two years in jail. I thought, yeah. well, I'll take my chances in the Army, but I didn't want to be there. But on the other hand, I'd certainly want to be there more than in jail. Yeah, in jail, so- yeah. <laughs> yeah, definitely. <laughs> so, but uh, yeah, you're, you're right, it could be done today, but... um. I don't think the people would stand for it for a minute uh, unless there was a war that was threatening Australia's safety. You know, that was the thing. The Vietnam War at no stage was our uh, yeah. um, safety at risk. No one was going to invade Australia, no matter how Menzies tried to whip up the communist domino theory of the time that the Reds were going to come storming down the Malay Peninsula and yeah. into Australia. It was just a, a total – they had no way of getting here for a start. They had no reasonable Air Force or Navy. Um, they were just guerrilla warfare. So um, there was no real threat to us. We just decided to go.
1: So if we, if,
0: if we can paint the picture, I guess, of your time. So if I, reg- I turned 20 in February 1971 – So I had to register sometime in that six months. I forget exactly when it was. But everybody who turned 20 in that six-month period registered. And then they'd have a ballot. Uh, I think there were four ballots a year at that stage. And mine was in May, I think, of that year. And then I got a letter saying go for a medical. And then the medical uh, obviously turned out okay. Then I got a notice to be called up. And I went into the Army on July the 7th, 1971. And so they send you off to a training camp.
1: They basically oh, yeah. say this is where you're off to, and I'm assuming it's the nearest one to where you live. And then <laughs> yeah. how, how long are you stuck there? Like, you know, you, what, what is the minimum time that they will train you before they'll send you off
0: into, into combat? Well, unlike the earlier national servicemen, the 51, 59 guys, that everybody went and everybody did three months' training. And that was to create what's called a militia, to have a group of people in society that know how to handle a gun and can be further trained. But to train, we were part of a regular army, so we were called up to boost the regular army numbers. And so to do that, you have to train the bloke for about eight months totally before wow, he's okay. ready to be a, a combat soldier. And um, those of us who weren't combat soldiers were also doing other things without which we couldn't have sent troops to Vietnam because you've got to have all your backup services that go on the army. You've got to have your transport, your your, um, people who look after the tanks, the people, the mechanics, the cooks, the doctors, the butchers. There's a whole, they reckon for every guy on the front line, there's got to be 12 people behind him. Oh, wow. So... Um the people that went to Vietnam, sure enough, they, they're the ones that everybody noticed and talked about. But uh, without the other national servicemen, there was no army that could have fought in Vietnam because they just didn't have the numbers. Uh, they us so, yeah, back to your question. You did 10 weeks basic training. There were two. There were three training camps, uh, but the two main ones were in Kapuka in southern New South Wales near Wagga Okay, yeah. And that's one RTB, one recruit training base. And that's where the regular soldiers go or have gone and still go to. So if you go to join up in the Army and you want to be a regular soldier. And then they had Puckapunyal, which is just near Seymour in Melbourne, uh, Victoria. And um, that was if you are uh, a national from Western Australia, South Australia, Tasmania or Victoria, you did your basic training at Puckapunyal. And if you're from New South Wales, Queensland, Northern Territory and New Guinea, you finished up going to Kapuka. And I was uh, living in Daniloquy when I was called up, my hometown. So I went to Kapuka, um in New South Wales. And how long were you stationed out of there for? Well, you do 10 weeks basic training. And that's the most brutal and the most—that's <laughs> the oh, biggest okay. culture shock of all, So you're taken to it, it's a foot to the floor, a soft little, um, you know, soft civilian. Uh, even if you played footy or anything like that, you have no idea that the culture shock going into basic training. And in ten weeks, you would come out uh, absolutely as fit as you could possibly be. Some guys would lose up to uh, 10, 15 kilograms in body weight. Some would put on body weight. Um, you could run five mile, eight kilometres in full boots with a rifle uh, uh, in a march in an hour before breakfast. It was just amazing the things that you finished up doing. which made you feel terrific at the time. But you did 10 weeks of that. You learned to fire a rifle. You learned to drill. You learned to you'd be out in the bush for a couple of weeks during that. Um, and then you went there from there, you were assigned a corps. And the core training was the next thing. You'd either go into infantry, engineers, or all the different cores, Ramy, Rescue, to do different things, Catering Corps. And um, at the end of your basic training, they'd sit down, and with us, they'd say, okay, so-and-so goes to so-and-so, so-and-so. And And then they'd get halfway through, and they'd say, and the rest go into infantry, because that's where most of the Nashos were required. And the infantry are the guys, the grunts, as we call them, who... um, have to run around the bush with them um, carrying heavy weapons and packs and um they're the front line but you've got engineers that back them up with uh, mines and uh, water building water supplies bridges but uh, diffusing mines uh, the engineers were the guys who went down the tunnels uh then you've got um, signals you've got your armoured corps the tank people you've got Jeez. your artillery people who fire guns so they're all needed to make an army and yeah. uh then you got your 10-weeks core training, and then after that, you got a specialist training. If you were going to Vietnam, you'd go to Canungra uh, up in Queensland and you'd do uh, another three- or four-week uh, jungle training course to learn how to fight in the jungle. And then you were ready to be a soldier. And that's it? You're off? That's well, it. and I'll tell you, we were as well-trained as any soldiers. You have to, that's one thing I can never fault was the um, – Quality of the training of the soldiers, we were well-trained. And uh, you are very self-confident once you were trained that you could match it with anybody because you could. Oh, Handling okay. weapons, um, you know, f- fit, strong, disciplined. Um, and you did a lot of drills where you you get ambushed and stuff like that out on exercises so you, you would know how to react in a war situation, you know, if you're being fired upon, all those sorts of things. So we were well-trained and... Uh, uh, for a lot of us, like myself, the army wasn't the trouble. It was after the army was my problems. But uh, each one of us has got a different story. Well, and and that's
1: another thing that I was going to touch on is is the the after the war because obviously that was a big issue too for all the people that came back from from war. And it was interesting because I um, I found a uh, sort of a documentary. It's a bit of a clip of a documentary. It was an ABC production back in the 80s. Uh, I'm sure you've probably stumbled across it, and it's a group of returned servicemen of, of the Australian Army, and it's their stories and, and their battle, their mental battle with, with issues yep. and the way they were treated. And it was incredible. I, don't, I think, look, I think by the look of it, it was filmed in the early 80s, but and they touched on that it took, they got home, you know, say 1974 they were coming home. It took until 1982 before the first any type of establishment body, anything that was there to help these guys with their issues. It took that long for someone to get their stuff together and say, these guys need a hand. You know, if the government wants to impose a new tax, they'll do that 3 o'clock in the morning and it'll be ready to go (laughs) next week. Yeah, yep. yep. And it took this long. I was blown away that there was... But what, what? some of the things... You know that they went into it. it it's um, a very heavy documentary to watch because these men were broken. They were they were yeah. absolutely yeah. destroyed. It's shocking to watch, yeah. and it's yeah. um, you know, and it's not only them that was impacted. It would be their their parents, their partners. It's a big chain reaction, and 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 a lot of them all said, "And for what? What was this all for? We we did it. We don't understand what this was for, and our lives are ruined." And it was it's a hard documentary to watch, but I think it's an important one because there would be a lot of people oblivious just to what went on after and and the battle these people had. And even in the comments section on this YouTube video, there are people that, and they were commenting about how, um, you know, horrific the, the, the thing was to watch, but how important it is. One person commented and said, oh, you know, I'm from America and I don't even have any idea of how bad things were for our returned servicemen. And so this isn't uniquely Australian. This this was uh, yeah, which is incredible. And I find that you go back a decade. You've got Menzies, um, what could you say, Uh, creating brochures to encourage his agenda to have you go to war. Government is behind you. We must do this. And then afterwards, everyone's dropped the hot potato and doesn't want to talk about it. It's that's an incredible turn of events. (laughs) It's, it's just, well, and, you hey,
0: know, welcome I'm just, ex- ex- eh? it, yeah, um,
1: it's, it, you can't, you can't process why it, it just seems so odd, that even now in retrospect, you know, retrospect is beautiful because you can look back and see what was wrong and what was right and adjust for the future, but it's still, you know, like where we lead into now what you're fighting for, common sense seems to be a battle.
0: Well, I think the trouble in Australia is that governments get elected every three years and um, uh, they always have to try and appeal to the populace who got the most votes. And um, uh, we didn't, ex-servicemen have never really featured high on that list. Every so often it's pointed out how bad things are and... um, uh, people take notice and say, isn't that shocking, and then it just moves on again. And you've got the situation now where the Department of Veterans Affairs, their own, the minister that had just got the boot, came out and said, well, we're 60,000 cases behind, of people that need help. If I don't get more money to settle these cases, I'm going to resign. Well, the guy should have resigned three years ago because um, it was under his watch. We've got a Veterans Affairs uh, Department that seems to be put there at the moment to stop people getting any compensation. A lot of our members just find a a brick wall. Most of them would give up. Most of them give up. And then you'll wait two or three years before you'll get any action. You normally get a negative first. Um, This may change under Labor. We don't know, but it hasn't changed in the past. And it's been generations. Now, if you, when we get on to our particular thing in a minute, we are probably our own worst enemies in that we copped at sweet for a long time, as they say. When we got out of the Army, uh, it was the 70s. wasn't manly to, for a guy to come out and say, well, I'm feeling a bit distressed. I'm having a hard time settling back into civilian life. Yeah, um, um, I've got problems. You just went on with it and uh, we didn't speak up and nobody said, well, hey, we need help. And no one said, hey, we haven't even been thanked yet. No one's even said thank you, um, acknowledged that we were even there. And to this very day, they haven't. And now 50 years, it might be 50 years too late, but we're standing up and we're saying, hey, you know, about time to look at us.
1: Well, and and moving to your organisation, because you know, you've mentioned that the youngest um, is 70-odd, you Yeah. So if, if we're going to do the right thing, we're going to have to start doing the right <laughs> thing, you know, sooner rather than later because obviously there's been a lot that uh, are no longer with us that never saw the it be righted yeah. as such. So it, it, in terms of what your organisation is for is is basically, and, and pull me up if I'm wrong, we're talking... The guys that were forced to go to war as such but never did the training and never ended up on the battlefield. But they yep. were plucked out of, out of civilian lines. We life. were
0: conscripted but we didn't serve in a war zone. Yep. So as far as the Veterans Affairs and the Australian Army is concerned, the guys that went to Vietnam, they were all, all qualified for a DVA gold health card which looks after their health uh, requirements, health and dental, for the rest of their lives. And will go on to their partners when they die.
1: Right, okay. that's a very
0: great comfort to them. But the blokes that didn't go to Vietnam, um, we have had nothing. Not even, not even a thank you. Really, that's what pisses us right off. Yeah, we've got one medal, one crummy medal, for um, being a national serviceman. And there's another medal that every soldier gets, the Australian Defence Force medal. And um, as I say to people, you can't take a medal down to the hospital and get a new hip. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) You can stick your medals where they (laughs) hurt. As far as I'm concerned, uh, I'm not interested in medals. I'm I'm interested in, I I spent two years of my life in the Army. Uh, It turned my life on its head, completely screwed it up. Um, And I think like the other guys who are still alive, um, and there's a lot of them have died already, they deserve something for those two years. And that's what we're pushing for. Is that just because we didn't go to Vietnam doesn't mean we didn't suffer a lot of the problems. Yeah. And in fact, we suffered some more problems because not only did we have the problems of being dislocated from our families, our loved ones, our careers, a lot of them, and like in my case, my career completely ruined. My girlfriend um, shoved off and married another bloke. And uh, my friendship group, I never really got to reconnect with them again because I had to go to another, to Canberra from Daniloquin to get my job back. So I'm just one of many, many stories like that. We had those problems. We had the guilt that we didn't go to Vietnam. And that was even, people were saying, well, did you go to Vietnam? No, that was the end of the story. Like, well, you felt ashamed that you didn't go to Vietnam. So there's that. There's blokes who's, Trained with people who did go to Vietnam, for some reason, they might have hurt themselves or whatever just before they left. They didn't go. They've got survivor's guilt if their friends got killed. I get blokes on the phone every day crying, and um, it's really very moving. They're they're still hurting after 50 years. But what you're chasing and what you're seeking
1: for for your members, it isn't something that doesn't exist. You're not asking the government to create something that isn't there. You're just asking for access to what already does exist for others, which should be quite yeah,
0: easy. We're not sure. We believe that there's a precedent for what we've done um, a, called the Maralinga precedent uh, where people who worked on the Maralinga atomic um, testing were given gold cards. They were people that didn't go to war. Ah, oh, right. Okay. But, um, that's one of the precedents we're working on. But it will depend on when we're getting help. I'm getting a lot of help from the Greens, actually, which is very un- unlikely pairing with um, a group of old white guys in the Greens, i <laughs> uh, uh, They have been terrific, and um, Senator Steele-John re- and his staff have just been fabulous. But they are working on it, this in the background, and we're looking at how could it be done does it have to have legislation or can it be just done with the existing uh, legislation that's there? But we are asking to be granted gold cards, uh, that whatever has to be done is done, and then um, that would be seen as good reparation. If the government wants to give us some other reparation, I don't so, suppose we would shut the door on that either, but we believe we're due reparation. Yeah, and that's yes. a- that's the thing. The guys that went to the NASHOs that went to Vietnam have got their gold cards. Uh, we have got nothing, not a thing that a bloke can serve one day in the army and get the same benefit. We can all apply for a thing called the DVA white card, okay, which gets you six dollars forty a fortnight. So I save up and get a coffee every fortnight. Yeah, yeah, uh, and it gets you psychological help if you need it, but. It, it can it lead to other things. But even that, 34% of our members only knew about this bloody card because DVA has never told anybody even even exists. Uh-huh. So they've just kept it quiet. We ask every new member when they join, they do a little questionnaire on the um, registration form. 34% only have heard about it. I asked DVA why uh, do so few people know about it they haven't come forward. So they've never advertised it, never told anyone. And uh, so that's the mentality we're dealing with at DVA. It's just like we're giving you nothing and we're taking you nowhere. And uh, so we see it as, uh, you know, basically we have to go around them. We can't go through them, unfortunately. And how long have you been been fighting for this? Well, I only started this, the organisation was incorporated on February the 20th. Okay so we're fifty years too late, yeah, but um, it was only through me going through um on my gov looking at my Medicare that I discovered this d v a white card that I could apply for it, and I said, that's funny, I never heard of that bloody thing in my life, so um <laughs> typical Australian Department of Veterans Affairs, no one knows about it, never been advertised, wow. never told anyone it's just word of mouth, so it- um is it looking promising? Is it, is it a, you
1: know, is the feedback and the response you're getting from those that are on side within the, the big mechanic wheels of the government, is it looking that, that you know, they, they can
0: solve this problem? Francis, one day I'm hoop and think it's just a matter of time, go and stand by the letterbox and the, the gold card will be turned up, yeah. and the other one is next day I think we're, we're further back than we said. I think we are getting places. We've made a lot of effort just recently to tell, make sure people know. All our members are being urged to write to the new prime minister, the new department of veteran <coughs> affairs minister, their local minister. Uh, I've met with the Greens uh, on two occasions now. I, I zoomed with um, Senator Lambie yesterday. She's uh, going to help us as well. So. Um, we're heartened by the fact that we've got friends on the crossbench because they're going to have some sort of sway. But uh, we just got to try and build. We've got a petition going at the moment. There's, uh, we've got just over 20,000 signatures so far, but we're working on that. We'll have a couple of ads running tomorrow, one in the Age and one in the Hobart Mercury. Right, okay. So uh, if I can winkle out some some people for us. Um, if that, we charge 30 bucks a year for our members. So we just basically take that money and we spend it on advertising yep. to try and get more members. So if we can yep. get, I think we've got to get 30 members from the one in Hobart and 90 from the one in Sydney, uh, Melbourne to make it pay. And if we get that, we'll reinvest that money in Sydney and Brisbane and we'll just keep, keep going. going. Yeah, They reckon there's 35,000 of us left. And when oh, I say okay. they, I've asked several actuarial people that should know about these things, and I'm getting different answers. But of the 48,000 of us, there's probably a third of us have died already. So Mm -hmm. uh, the rest of us are in God's waiting room as well. So it's just, um, you know, we better get our skates on, as you said. And some of my members are old men already, you know. They're 77, and they're not up for a big fight. You tell yeah. them no, they go, oh, no, okay. So, you know, that's that's the way it is. So there's only a few of us, of us younger blokes in our early 70s who've still got the the, the bit of punch about us who want to keep going and give it our best shot. But, yeah. um, so my job is to try and jam up. I send them, uh, I send out a, a, a newsletter every week if I can, tell them what we're doing, getting them to send them templates of letters to write and what and can people donate money to the to? I mean, you know, is there a way of that the
1: organization well, sure can receive we'd love money? We
0: would people to donate. It's like we've never asked for donations outside of our membership thing. Our website. Have you seen our website? Yeah, I have. Yeah. Have you read the stories? No, I don't think I've read the stories. I've I've
1: read the the about, and I've read you know all the the fundamentals, but I, I haven't got into some the of stories. the stories
0: because that'll give you an idea of some of the th- issues that the non-Vietnam Nasho has got, you know, because the, the opinion that DVA got came when they, I first started speaking. To them. It was, oh, well, you guys didn't go to Vietnam, so what's your problem? You know, you just had two years here in Australia and yeah. life was just hunky-dory. Yeah, Hang on. Huh? Yeah, I was working for the CSIRO in Danilipin, three years. I had a job career. I was studying part-time, doing a Bachelor of Science by correspondence. I had a girlfriend, I had a part ownership in a racehorse. I was a member of a golf club. Um, I was to play in the final of the men's four-ball match, play the weekend, like the week I got called up. so And I was in Kapuka. My poor old mate had to play on his own. Um, I've been back to that town once in my life since then. Um, wow. When I got out, they sent me a letter saying, I said, yeah, we've got your job, but you have to go to Canberra. So you can start I again. Wasn't, I didn't know enough about it. Uh, technically they weren't supposed to have done that, but they did it. And, uh, you know, we didn't know anything in those days. So off I went to Canberra, didn't know anybody. Uh, they gave me a – they didn't even know it was coming. They gave me a shit job. You know, I've been working with a scientist one-on-one doing research work and plant work. as um, Quinn was at Rangeland Laboratory up there, and we did pretty high sophisticated work. Say so I was doing a Bachelor of Science. Um, wow. I'm not genius, but I was no dummy either. And yeah. I get to Canberra and, oh, gee, you're here. So what they do is put me in a corner washing glassware and said, oh, you can bring your books if you like and study, do your degree study because we don't really have a job for you. And I go, well, you know, th- th- you're supposed to have a job for me. I've just spent two years in the Army and uh, I didn't know anyone in Canberra. It's a pox of a place in 1972, really? three. It was the poxiest place, a single man who knew nobody could go. I was just, I was became so depressed. I became an alcoholic, a uh, very heavy alcoholic, quit my job after six weeks. Jeez. Oh, um, and I spent the next three or four years just bumming around Australia, then overseas, um, came back and got my life back on track a bit, but still burning, always been burning in my gut that uh, that happened. Um so friends of a life, friends of a lifetime, girlfriend, job, all gone.
1: And, and the, I'm not the only
0: one. A lot worse than me.
1: The thing is, like, you know, when you said they said to you, but what are you whinging about? You didn't go to war. And it's like, well, but I didn't turn up here because I wanted to. The, <laughs> the government made us do it. So yeah. now that it's all over, how about you put your hand in your pocket and say, here you go. Like it's... least give
0: us a brochure that says tips for settling back into civilian life. Yeah. So a lot of guys in the army, a lot of people become so institutionalised they forget how to think for themselves. They Everything's provided for you and if you're a private, you're told what to do, especially if you're a grunt. And the rule of the army is you never stand up when you can sit down, you never sit down when you can lie down, you never lie down awake when you can go to sleep. So life in the especially in the peacetime Australian army, was pretty damn boring, but a lot of guys got institutionalised to it and a lot of them re-signed back into it because they got back out into civilian life and they couldn't hack it. Wow. And they found, it was um, you know, <laughs> you could go in, in the army, you get on the piss and drink all your wages away and you still had a bed to sleep in and you had three meals a day and you could go and bot some money off a friend to get you through to payday uh, it was a lot of um, uh, comfort for some people. Very hard for a lot of us to get settled back into civilian life, and a lot of them didn't. A lot of them went back into into military life, and um, that was all they could hack after two years of being in it. That no, was interesting.
1: Gee, yeah, that's. I mean, there's no, there's no, no one can doubt the disruption that that conscription. Had caused. There's no you, no one could ever doubt that. So um, it's surprising that these departments don't feel some sense of responsibility to help. It's.
0: it's- oh, well, that, that, see, they play lip service to me. This white card gives you unlimited psychological help. So you only have to ask for it and you can go and get it. And I tried it out. I thought, oh, well, I'll give it a go to see what is on available as a little experiment for my friend. And I've been a I've been sober for 18 months now, but I was a heavy alcoholic I said, for 50 years. Wow. And I thought, oh, we'll see if he wants to unpick a bit. And they gave me a kid in his early 30s, and I finished up yeah. listening more to his problems than him, to mine. Yeah. And um, I thought, well, if this is what the guys are going to have to go and a 70-year-old man's going to have to go and sit. And, um, this guy's supposed to be sorting him out. Well, this is not going to work. So, uh, But that they will say, oh, yeah, but we're giving our men as much psychological help as they want. So they shouldn't be unhappy. They should be very happy because they just have to get some psychological help, and it's all fixed and yeah. self all right. So <clears throat> it's lip service. Politicians will do that all the time, and public The um, bureaucracy in the, the Veterans Affairs is just terrible. Just, not one of my members who's had anything to do with Veterans Affairs has got any problems, and there's still guys are chasing compensation after 50 years who haven't got it but not one of them has got a good word to say about it. So, it's, um, I've got cases. I'm just about to ring a bloke now. He got rejected, and he's got 10 plates in his back. He fell out of fall in training, and he's had back problems ever since, and he's had operations, and he's got this and that wrong. And he applied for a conversation. They said, no, because you didn't, he got onto somebody in the system, and they said, oh, no, you didn't go to Vietnam, so there's nothing we can do for you, and he gave up. And I'm going to have to try and rekindle that now and see if yeah. we can get it started again for him because it's not fair. It's not, it's right. not fair. I'm, no, it's totally not fair. I'm going to have yeah. to try. Yeah, but I've got probably 20 or 30 blokes in our, cl- in our association in that situation that should be still on, active on Veterans Affairs books, but they're not. Um, they've been told no and they just accepted no. oh. That's the way life treats me, and off they go. So, if you get a chance, read some of the stories. On I will, the, yeah, yeah. I, I on the, on the, on yeah, the There's I one bloke there who's a, a friend of mine. He fell off a skid on the prop a chopper when he was doing his jungle training. He would have been would have gone to Vietnam, but then he fell, and he's having back troubles and operations this very day. And he's still his case is still with Veterans Affairs, and he got the wrong advocate or something. You know, they've got a system that. To get your case heard, you've got to have an advocate. The advocate doesn't even work for Veterans Affairs. He's a guy who's a volunteer at the local RSL club, and he could know nothing or he could be a genius. But your luck, if you go to put in a claim, it's the luck of the guy that they give you, whether he's a dummy or whether he's... So Mm -hmm. this is what we've got to live with. It's just incredible. Yeah,
1: yeah, no, it it is. Well, look, I mean, that group is obviously lucky that they've got someone like yourself with the young fighting spirit and the drive to to make change so that you know it's it's good that there is someone that's going into to battle and you know I hope that you can you can change the system up and get what you're fighting for because you got you all of you deserve
0: it well thank you if people are looking to help certainly our our bank account number is on the uh, website are uh, the information but it's not money will be spent just in advertising and we will go we'll go with ads in the local press um, We've got to try and find as many of these thirty-five thousand folks as we can, and we're only yeah. in the hundreds so far yet. So, oh, wow. uh,
1: okay, so yeah, you've got a long way to go. Well, well, to well go. or a lot of opportunity stands in front. That's the other way to think of it. So,
0: yeah, yeah. The other thing people could do for us is sign our petition. Yep. And if you go onto our website, right on the front page is a button where they can press and sign the comm- petition and that'll go through to change.org, our petition. We've got um, 20,000-odd signatures already, but our website, www.nashofairgo.com.au, it's got a direct line to the change.org petition, and when we get the numbers for that, I think um, Senator um, Steele-John will present it, the guy from the Greens will present it to Parliament for (laughs) us.
1: Well, I will also on um, where I post this, when this becomes a podcast, it gets posted on my site. I'll have a link to your site um, as well. So people can go straight from this episode, straight over to your site and find all that information. And they can sign the petition and donate money if they want to donate and read some of those stories as well. So I'll make it as easy as I can for people that want to know more to find your. Thank you. Um, and, yeah, you know, by all means, When keep me posted. If, if, there's, if there's change and progress and, and things that are happening, um, Absolutely. let me know. And we can, uh, you know, we can keep this story moving
0: forward, hopefully in the right direction. Well, I'd be very grateful for that because, um, yeah, we, any bit of help we can get is what we're after at the moment. So. Yeah,
1: um, yeah, definitely. Oh, look, I, just, I wish you all the best with it
0: thank you well we might not never get anywhere but uh, we're going to give it a fairly good crack anyway
1: yeah no well definitely you've got to. it's too important um and i will also probably put a link to that uh youtube that abc documentary um because i think that adds a lot of context and weight to the whole uh, it just people are oblivious there's and, and you know we we're moving so fast there's so much racket It's hard to to be aware of everything, and uh, but you know when you watch something like that, it it's it's it pulls you up. It it adds an extra layer of weight
0: to it and importance. Yeah, Mm. and uh, it's interesting. A lot of young people don't can't conceive that a we were forced into conscription under threat of imprisonment. Yeah. Uh, that's that's inconceivable that Australia in Australia today that that could have happened. And we're also asked why aren't we representing the national service women? <laughs> to yeah, stay because well, well. there weren't any. <laughs> yeah, yeah, back then <laughs> that never, wouldn't have been a thing at all. Never occurred to Menzies that you'd have national service women.
1: Yeah.
0: Um, so uh, and that's even. I think Jackie Lambie was asking the same question. Uh, you know, these sexist bastards—they're not representing the national service women. So, oh. well, they weren't any, I'm <laughs>
1: Yeah, yeah yeah very different time very different time
0: yeah and as I say we copped you you basically copped it sweet if that was your lot in life that was your lot in life and uh a lot of uh, we just pushed it under the carpet and went on with our lives it's just now that a lot of blokes are starting to reflect on their lives and think well I'll probably be dead in 10 years time and um it's not really fair that this no, especially no. the blokes whose lives it it, it altered irre- irrevocably and um I was lucky I got my life back on track to a certain extent. I've had a lot of fun and I've got a good family and everything, but some blokes have been uh, uh, really badly hammered. I've had several marriages, uh, hit the grog, unable to um, keep jobs. I was lucky I was a functional alcoholic and um, managed to work and no one ever knew I was um, three sheets to the wind every day.
1: (laughs) And that's but, look, that's uh, no small feat, but you know it's that's devastating on its own, and that's just such a strong monster and you can't uh when people overcome that that is that is a mammoth achievement
0: yeah well, I guess I'm lucky I've got uh, five grandkids and I want to see them grow up and uh uh my family sort of they were part of my recovery, so that's yeah. a big thing people don't realize if you're lucky enough to have a family around you and friends that you can Use to come out to, and that was how I did it. I just basically sat down. That's really. Hang cool. on, I got something to tell you all.
1: <laughs> yeah, well, that's uh, yeah, and obviously now, I mean, it puts you in good stead. You, you, you know, you're firing on all cylinders to go and tackle this battle. So, ah,
0: oh, gives you so much more energy. Unbelievable. Yeah.
1: That's one big battle, and then the next one, I'm sure, is you're going to conquer this this one here for you oh we'll, we'll give it our awesome. best shot um, but, but keep me posted so let me know if anything changes shoot me an email and we can we can do a, a you know yeah, a I version thank, you, two I of thank this. you very
0: much for your interest that's really um, uh, it's very gratifying that you are interested and i um, whatever support you can garner us we greatly appreciate it
1: yeah no definitely no no look I'm, I'm thankful for your time and and um, and coming on so that's great thank you very much no thanks, thanks Jeff you thank much. you very much I appreciate okay. your time thanks, I'll, I'll see you soon Hey, I fixed my I fixed my Zoom. <laughs> <laughs> Ring Jackie back.
0: <laughs> what I look like, Jackie? <laughs> oh, man. <laughs> yeah. Thanks, mate. Right,
1: Jeff, see you mate. Bye. If you wanted to find out any more information, you can head over to bumpinginto.com.au. There you'll be able to find all of the links to the documentary that we spoke about, the links to the Nasho Fair Go website as well, where you can check out the stories, donate some money and find out a bit more information. Just click on this episode link if you're trying to find out more about this episode or have a look around the site at all of the other past episodes and share them with anyone that you think might be interested in that. Thanks very much for listening.